Well, we are in week number two of Advent, and let's just do a a quick refresher of what Advent is all about. This is a time and a season where we remember the birth of Jesus and where we expectantly anticipate his return. It is a time and season about the middle space between Christ's birth and his return. And so we are looking at the gospel of Luke, and we are looking at the people God used to bring about the birth of Jesus and how God prepared them. Because in doing so, we see how God prepares us in expectantly waiting for Christ to return. And so our text this morning is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And this is the announcement of the birth of Jesus to Mary. And it is a famous text and is a text that I think for many of us, um, it is so familiar that we almost don't hear the story. We, we know how it ends. And so we just... Uh, We take it in. We don't ask any questions. And I want all of us to try to suspend knowing the outcome of the story because Mary certainly didn't know the outcome of the story. The people involved certainly didn't know the outcome of the story. And so in this text, we see God is a God of grace. And his grace defies our expectations. His grace, it extends into places and into people that we wouldn't expect. His grace, it shows up in ways we wouldn't expect. And his grace sweeps us up and and pulls us into his story in ways we wouldn't expect. So first, we're going to look at grace in places and people we don't expect. We're going to look second at uh, grace showing up in ways we don't expect. And lastly, we're going to look at how grace sweeps us up in ways we don't expect. So keep your Bibles open. uh, Follow along with me. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Luke, he, he sets the stage by Elizabeth's um, pregnancy. She's now six months pregnant. And it's been a month since our last text that we looked at last week. And again, it, Gabriel is sent, the angel of the Lord is sent to do God's business in the world And when we look at this passage and the passage we looked at last week, this is um, two passages that are of great contrast to one another. Let me point out just three things. First, Gabriel met Zechariah in the temple. This was the center of religious activity. This was the center of the world as far as any Jews were concerned in that day. But now Gabriel meets Mary in Nazareth. Nazareth wasn't even close to being the center of the world. Nazareth was um, insignificant. It was even despised by some people. Some Jews uh, even considered the city unclean. It is a backwoods town. Uh, Another contrast, uh, Gabriel was sent to Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are priestly pure. They were the best of the best in Israel's social and cultural makeup. Um, But now, Gabriel is sent to Mary. We don't even get her family lineage. We don't know who Mary is from. Uh, She's about to marry into the line of David, but that is not yet hers. Mary is common. She is ordinary. She is not the best of the best. And then there's one more thing, too. Uh, Last week, Gabriel is sent to Elizabeth, who is barren. And we talked about how her barrenness was really about another sort of barrenness. It was about the barrenness in the world. It was about how the people of God had gone through a time of silence and waiting for God to come and fulfill his promises and to restore uh, his grace and good fortune towards them. So we, asked, we have to ask the question, what, what does Mary's virginity point to? 
You know, last week it's old and barren. This week it's a 15-year-old girl who's a virgin. Like, what does that point to in the world? And I think it shows us that the world at this moment of history is paradoxically barren and a virgin. The people of God are longing to see God show up, longing to see God restore um, his presence to the world. And yet the very God they are longing for, they have yet to know fully. They have yet to encounter him in the way that God is yet to reveal himself. So in many ways, the world is still virgin in its knowledge of God. That's the setting. We're in the middle of nowhere with a teenage girl that nobody knows in a world that is both barren and virgin. And it's here that God brings what the world had been longing for but didn't know. This is where God brings the gospel of grace. God's grace comes to insignificant Nazareth. This is not the place the people of God would expect God to show up. But God shows up here because there is not one place on all the face of the earth. There is not one place in all of the universe that God isn't reconciling to himself. God's grace shows up to common Mary. This isn't the person God's people would think that God would show up. And again, it's because God... He is interested in every single person that covers the face of the earth. God is not impressed um, by status. You know, whether righteous or elderly, barren or common, young or virgin, God's interest isn't piqued by those sort of things. God and his grace and his unmerited loving action towards us is available to all equally. That is a part of the gospel. So we see God's grace coming to a place we don't expect. It's coming to a person we don't expect. But then it shows up in ways we would never expect. And it's an unexpected surprise. Gabriel sent to Mary and he greets her in verse 28. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. You will note that twice Gabriel emphasizes that Mary has found favor with God. In the Greek, this word for favor is grace. Mary has found grace with God, that God's extravagant favor has come towards her and that it's not based on her status or her significance, but based upon the God who is gracious towards people in a way that they could never merit. And this greeting, it takes Mary by complete surprise. You know, I said last week, like, nobody is ever expecting to encounter an angel. Like, if an angel of the Lord shows up in your backseat and this week is like, take me to A&W. Like, no, like, this is not in our framework of the things that we expect to happen. Like, so surely this is surprising to Mary. But it's an unexpected surprise because Mary, too, is aware that she was a common teenage girl in the middle of nowhere. When an angel of the Lord shows up on her doorstep and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. It is a pretty outlandish greeting. Like, me? Favored by God? Like, God is with me? Like, it seems, Gabriel, like, I don't want to be offensive, but like, your your message might have got mixed up. Like, you are in the wrong place with the wrong person. If a messenger of the queen showed up at your door, let's say Sir Paul McCartney shows up at your door. And he says to you, greetings, favored one of Her Majesty. The queen invites you for tea at Buckingham Palace at high noon. 
After which, we will head over to Wembley Stadium and sing Hey Jude together. Like, if this happened to you, which is clearly my wildest dream, but like, if this happened, like, it would cause you to raise an eyebrow because the greeting would be vastly disproportionate to your status. It is not the sort of greeting you would expect, let alone the sort of greeting you deserve. And that's what's happening to Mary. But that doesn't explain why Mary is greatly troubled. Mary is greatly troubled because Mary knows her Bible. Next week, we'll look at Mary's song, the Magnificat. It is 22 verses. Do you know how many allusions to the Old Testament are contained in those 22 verses? Anybody? 46. 46 allusions to the Old Testament in 22 verses. Mary got a gold star in Bible trivia. Like, Mary knew her Torah. And so, when she hears greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She knows that this is not a summons to comfort and ease. Take Gideon from the Old Testament as an example. He's threshing wheat in a wine cellar. This would greatly fail any health regulations we have today. And even then, like, no ventilation. Like, this would be bad for you. But he's hiding out from the Midianites who are oppressing Israel. And, and so he, he, he threshes wheat in a wine cellar. And it is there that God sends an angel to Gideon who greets him and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The one threshing wheat in a wine cellar just so that he can hide from his enemies. God calls a man of mighty valor. The grace extended to him exceeds his character and it exceeds his status. And the summons to follow God means confronting people that he never wanted to confront. It means facing the very people that he is hiding from. Grace meets him and it calls him and it, and it takes him into a situation that he never expected. We see this in the scriptures. So when this greeting comes to Mary, she knows it comes at the cost of her life having to be surrendered. It comes at the cost of being called into something much greater than herself. But it also comes with the promise that God will be with you in that calling. Mary knows this. God summons Mary. Remember this. God summons her in the midst of her engagement, in the midst of the wedding planning, in the midst of dreaming about what life will be like with Joseph, like in the prime of her life, God summons her. So you can understand why she finds this greatly troubling. What will it entail? What's God calling her into? Will she be capable of it? Well, it means surrendering any comfort and ease in her life. Gabriel says to her in verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel essentially says to Mary, like, Mary, God's grace is towards you, because you are going to give birth to the Messiah. You are going to give one to the, birth to the one that your people have been waiting for everlasting king who will come and establish his everlasting kingdom. Mary, you're going to be his mama. And you have to think, like, Mary, I'm not sure at this point she heard any of that message. Like there is an issue that needs to be addressed, Gabriel. Like if my um, dream visit with the queen and Paul McCartney didn't end there, say Paul McCartney was like, Mr. Stern, you and I are going to head back to America now. 
and we're going to face off against LeBron James and Michael Jordan in a basketball match. I would have to humbly submit into evidence a different sort of knight, Wesley Snipes, from the 1992 classic White Men Can't Jump, in which he says, I have four words for you. White men can't jump. Like, even if I understood the rules of basketball, like, I understand the orange ball goes into the net that is high up in the pole. Like, that is all I understand. But even if I understood basketball, even if I was somewhat proficient in the skill of dribbling, like, McCartney and Stern would not have a chance against James and Jordan. There is something lacking, something called skill, something called ability. Mary, Gabriel is telling her that God is is inviting her to come play in the big leagues of God's plan for salvation in the world. There's an issue, like there is a lack of ability. Mary is a virgin. Surely Mary is is thinking like, look, I know I'm young, but I'm not naive. I know how babies are made. Let me tell you about the birds and the bees. Like, like there is an ability that she has yet to acquire when it comes to making babies. But Mary just says in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? There's no hint of doubt in her question. Last week when, when Zachariah talks back to the angel, like he's, he has a doubt that's eroding his faith. There's no hint of that in the text here. What, what's happening is Mary has a purely practical question. Maybe Mary's thinking, like, this will happen a few years from now. You know, like once Joseph and her get married and settle down, decorate the house and go on their first vacation, like Tiberius is supposed to be really nice in the summer and, like, she was planning on that and, you know, then get back and, like, Joseph can get, like, a job and maybe once he gets a promotion, like, and once, like, they're really, like, financially settled, like, then, like, yeah, the baby, like, and then, yeah, maybe one of those babies will turn out to be the Messiah. Like, maybe that's going through her mind. But Gabriel... He answers her, he says in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This isn't a future event for Mary. This isn't get your life in order. This isn't a a time where everything is lined up. The first shocking reality is that Joseph will not be the biological father of this son. Jesus will be born by the power of the Holy Spirit. It will be a miraculous work, and the result will be that Jesus is the Holy Son of God. He will be fully human. He will share Mary's blood. He will be sustained by her life in the womb. He will develop within her. But he will also be fully God. He will mysteriously have two natures, human and God, in one person. This was completely unexpected. There was no expectation that the Messiah would be God making an appearance by clothing himself in human flesh. It defied any expectations the people had about the Messiah, and the world had no idea about the fullness of God that they were about to meet in Emmanuel. But just as Mary needs the issue of her virginity to be addressed, we do too, if we're honest, don't we? Some of us, like, we're stuck on that point, like, Virgins don't give birth to babies. We know this. Like, this doesn't happen. And some will deny the virgin birth on the basis that these things just don't happen. And and while there are are a lot of good things that can be said in defense, I just want to ask a couple of questions. Now, what's the criteria 
for denying the virgin birth? And can we only affirm things that can be replicated in labs? Can we only affirm things that make sense to us? Are we closed off then to everything that we can't explain? Because if we reject all miraculous elements of all stories, because we've made up our mind ahead of time that such things simply aren't possible, we run the risk of shrinking the world down to what we can comprehend. We say that the world can only operate in this way and that we, we have a vantage point in our culture and we understand the fabric of the world and, and there is no room then for the mysterious. And this isn't even a rational argument, but like, what fun is that? What fun is that? Like, if, if, if there's a God, Luke is saying that he... It's the type of God of surprising, unexpected, and quirky impossibilities. As Gabriel says in verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. The nothing is impossible God makes the universe a lot more interesting, a lot more full of wonder, with unexpected and surprising U-turns that bring about new possibilities. Frederick Beekner. He's a theologian. He says, a miracle is when the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. A miracle is when one plus one equals a thousand. God showing up in the womb certainly meets this criteria. This is definitely one plus one equals a thousand. And it's exciting because it opens the world up to a whole range of possibilities that the world did not know were even possible. So it's challenging as the miraculous can be. Let's take the impossible reality in. Mary is told that her body is going to be used by God because of his grace to bring about Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. God is going to not just use her womb, not just her virginity, but her whole life. And if we think about it, like this is just a, a huge surrender. It is not just the surrender of some of her life. It is every minute, every moment. It is surrender of everything. Mary is going to have to deal with the potential ridicule that will come with being pregnant before her and Joseph are married. She's going to have to deal with the potential shame that that can bring upon Joseph. She's going to have to deal with the changes her body will go through over the next nine months. And then she will carry the responsibility of nursing the Savior of the world she will have to clothe him and keep him warm. She will have to care for him. She will have to nurture him and raise him. Any mom here knows, like, having a baby, like, that is not something that you have and just say, I'll just fit it into my free time. Like, it takes every minute, every moment. It takes everything. And then not even Mary's heart will be her own ever again. It will be intertwined with Jesus. Mary has to surrender everything when God's grace comes into her life. Which makes her response in verse 38 no small thing. Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, I don't want to imply, like, like this isn't some glum, stiff up, upper-lipped, Downton Abbey, like, yes, my Lord, like, sort of response to servitude. Like, that is not what is happening here. 
God isn't forcing Mary into this. She is caught up by the brilliance of it. Mary gets it. She gets that it is grace, that it is God's loving favor upon her through and through, and that she is invited into something much bigger than herself. She sees that God's grace shows up in a place no one expected, to a person no one expected, in ways that no one expected. And then she sees that the grace of God sweeps her up into his great story of redemption and salvation for the world. And the cost of entering into God's grace, the laying down of her life, it is nothing compared to what is gained. But grace does require the whole of Mary. It requires the sum of her being and not just pieces of her. You see, grace isn't something that we can compartmentalize. It's not something that we can conveniently fit into our lives. Getting wrapped up in the grace of God is not something that you can schedule. You know, it's not something that we just do on Sundays or in small groups or in the moments of your week that you schedule out for Jesus. It is not neat and tidy because it involves us and so implicitly it is messy. Grace weaves itself into the small things. Grace weaves itself into the large things, the seemingly insignificant moments of our lives and the mountaintop experiences of our lives full of success. And then we even find grace in the lowest heartbreaking moments of our lives. There is not one area of our lives that is too important. There is not one area of our lives that is too insignificant that we are somehow mysteriously finding ourselves separated from God's grace. God's grace is with us with no qualifiers. That's the mystery. Like, like that God, through what he is doing in his son, the grace that we see available to Mary is now available to everyone who places their trust in Jesus. The grace being that God is with us. Which means there's not one area of our lives that we can cling on to for ourselves. Everything is on the table. Mary put everything on the table for God. It's yours, I'm yours. Let it be according to your word. She is swept up in God's, uh, her small part in God's great plan. I think that's really, really hard for us. Don't you look at Mary and her response and think, like, no, matter how I, like, no matter how hard I try, like, I could never give my whole life to God in this way. I don't know if you know this, but I was in a hardcore band. It's true. We would tour around Canada and I would scream into a microphone and, and this picture is just my little Christmas present uh, gift to you. Um, it was hardcore. Screamo is what we called it. And uh, eventually after touring around Canada, we realized like if we want any shot of success, if we want any shot of this being our vocation, of this paying the bills, then we should probably start singing songs that people can actually sing. So we started trying to write catchier music, but there was one real problem. Me, I was the problem. Like on a good day, like on a really, really good day, I can sing on pitch like 49% of the time, like if I'm lucky. And I knew this, my band knew this, like auto-tune in the studio knew this, like, and they would, they would keep pushing me, like, Alistair, you can do it. Like, just listen to the chords and sing the right notes. Like, you can do this. We believe in you. And, and while I would try my hardest to learn how to sing on pitch, like, I carried around, like, a great shame about it. 
It would be like on my thoughts all the time. I felt guilty and I thought deep down, like if I can just feel bad enough, like maybe that'll help me turn the corner. I never turned the corner. And so then I thought, well, maybe I just need to try harder. And so like for three years, I took three singing lessons a week for three years and I didn't get any better. Like this sort of change, like it was simply beyond me. Which is, makes the fact that I can whistle with perfect pitch like so annoying. Like, I don't know why. Anyways, like, when it comes to giving our entire lives to God, we can do a few things in trying to do that, and maybe with good intentions, but they don't help. We can feel really bad about the reality that we don't give our whole lives to God. You can feel really bad about the parts that you're holding on to yourself. You can feel terrible about it. And maybe you feel bad that you don't even feel bad about it. Like there's the beginning of the guilt, right? It's building. And you think, if I can just feel bad enough about how I don't pursue God enough, then maybe one day I'll turn the corner. Maybe one day I'll find myself following him more. But it doesn't work. On the other hand, you, you might look at it and think, if I can just try harder, if I can just give more of my life, if I can bring in more discipline, like, and like some of the things you might bring in might be good. Like you might start reading the Bible. You might start digging into commentaries. You might start reading books. You might start listening to podcasts. And, and you go to the small groups, but you realize like there is always more of your life that you can lay down. And then you get the scary realization that your knowledge always exceeds your obedience. And that knowing a lot of, about God doesn't equal knowing God. Knowing a lot about God isn't the same thing as a life surrendered to God. And so you see that in trying harder, knowing more, it doesn't work. If we think getting swept up into God's grace is about what we can give of ourselves to God, if we think that getting swept up into his grace is about what we can give of ourselves to God, we're missing it. Mary understood something crucial, that this is not about her. God's grace is upon her. God's greeting is towards her. God's favor is targeted towards her, and God will use her. But even in all of God's presence with her, this is not about Mary. When she says, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. She is declaring God's intentions for her more than she is declaring her intentions for herself. She is declaring God's intentions for her more than she's declaring her intentions for herself. She is saying, behold, what God has said he is going to do in and through me is true. Which means I am his servant. Like That reality is true. And she is faithfully being open to God making that a possibility. You see, at this point of her life, Mary's Heart is a posture more than it is an obedience. It is an openness to what God has declared, to what God has revealed. And if we look at what Gabriel says to Mary, we see more clearly like this is not about Mary. This is entirely about Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. He will be called holy, the son of God. It's about his greatness, 
his name, his fulfilling of the promises, his throne, his reign, his unending kingdom, his holiness, who he is, the son of God. This is entirely about Jesus. This is about God faithfully bringing about what he has promised to do. And Mary knows, Mary knows that the one who has called her is faithful and he will do it. She trusts his favor, knowing that whatever it may cost her, and let's be honest, it will cost Mary. It is nothing compared to the riches of God's grace. And because of Jesus, because of how God sent Jesus into the world, this sort of favor, this sort of grace is available to us. God's unmerited loving action towards us is available because of Jesus. It is a grace that pursues It is a grace that is not bound to one place or person. It is a grace that opens up unexpected realities and impossible possibilities. And it is a grace that empowers us to follow God, to have our entire lives swept up into God's great uh, plan of renewal. And while grace may not always lead us into great ease and comfort, while it will involve sacrifice, God's grace will always be behind us, it will always be before us, and it will always be with us. What faithfulness looks like in the middle space may be challenging. It might be hard. But whatever God is calling you into, it is for your good. It is always for the world's good. And it comes with the promise that no matter what comes, God is with us. God is with us and nothing can change that. So how do we give our lives fully to the God of grace. We don't. God gave his life fully to us. That is grace. Which means you don't need to guilt yourself into giving your life more fully to God. It means you don't have to try harder to give your life fully to God. You simply have to be faithfully open to the reality of what God declares to be true about you. That if you are in Christ Jesus, God is with you in every minute, in every moment, in everything. Every nook, every cranny, every crack of the middle space between Christ's birth and his return, there is nowhere we can go that we escape the reality that God is with those who trust in Jesus. We simply have to be open to the God who makes that reality a possibility.